This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. And I'm Joe Lipset. I'm joined, as always, by Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe. Can I offer you a slice of incredible cherry pie? <laughs> Only if it comes with delicious coffee. Damn fine coffee. <laughs> but it also has to come I'll... with the tuna fish on uh, on wheat, oh, from God. what I understand. I mean, Adrian Cooper has very specific proclivities, which the series will unpack more as, yes, folks, we are talking about Twin Peaks. Here, we're just talking about the pilot. I will say, though, it was not fun to watch that entire table of donuts that Lucy had set out late at night because I was feeling mighty peckish. Oh, yes. I'm always I'm always here for a donut moment. But I was like, no, this is too much. I want to go order donuts like Mm -hmm. right now. (laughs) (laughs) it's an entire table there's only two men in that room come on i know right like that's (laughs) some good eating there Ugh, looks delicious. Yeah. So, folks, uh, obviously, banter aside, we are back for our second series. We are on, obviously, the David Lynch side of the podcast, and we are up to 1990s Twin Peaks. So this is a very active time in David Lynch's career. He would leave after directing the second episode of the series so he could go and make future episode Wild at Heart. Oh, really? So he has he's only directed two of the episodes? I think he comes back to do okay. either the premiere of season two or the premiere and maybe the finale. But yeah, he uh, more or less entrusted Mark Frost to uh, run the ship while he went off to make the film. But I think he might come back for the season two premiere or maybe the season two premiere and finale. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I just assumed that he directed all of it. That's interesting. So if if you if we ever get around to the return, which is technically season three of the show, I believe he did most of those episodes. Okay, yeah, I was looking into that because uh, the one I was looking for interviews and stuff about Twin Mm -hmm. Peaks, and it did come up that he viewed the return as like an 18 hour movie. So it would make sense that he would direct. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think is also one of the reasons why not just Twin Peaks fans, but David Lynch fans were so excited for that series. Because, I mean, as folks will have gathered at this point in our podcast history, David Lynch is nowhere near as prolific as other directors and definitely not Cronenberg, which is why we're already up to 1990, even though we haven't right. hit like 1983 as our next Cronenberg film. Jeez. Yeah, so in a way, uh, covering Twin Peaks, the TV show, for a little bit will help to even out the balance so that maybe we can make sure we're talking about similar time periods between the two directors. (laughs) Yeah, I I guess I hadn't even realized that. But yeah, we are up way ahead of where Cronenberg was at. Cronenberg Mm -hmm. was pretty prolific in the 80s, though, it seemed like. He was, yeah. He slows down a bit in the 90s. Yeah. So, Terry... Yes. You, uh, I mean, part of the reason we do this podcast is because you are looking to catch up on the filmography of both of these men. But uh, I think this was one of the titles you mentioned you had previously seen before we started. Yes, I I know I have seen this episode. I had mm-hmm. no recollection of anything okay. from it, except uh, <laughs> like certain scenes would pop or characters. Uh, 
I would be like, oh, I remember this character or I remember that actor. But mm-hmm. I honestly, most of it had apparently left my mind because I know I've seen like, I think this one and maybe the next two episodes. I'm not 100% okay. sure, but I did start it back in, gosh, I don't know if it was 2016 or 2017. Once they announced uh, the return, I was like, oh, I should get caught up uh, on it. And then as things happen, right. I never did. life gets in the way right life gets in the way so i'm i have familiarity with it and there were times when i was watching this where things would come back to me but for the most part this almost felt like a fresh watch for me Hmm. okay so i'm intrigued then what was your takeaway from this pilot like what pops who uh well so the thing that like i i immediately was drawn to well there's there's three things first is the music Mm-hmm. Oh, Angelo Badamenti. I mean, it's iconic, right? It, it, even though, Absolutely. like, even though I hadn't seen this when I when I remember watching this both times, and I remember watching it, I was like, "Oh, I have heard this theme song mm-hmm. played in reference, but not really, you know, connecting the dots as to where it had come from." Uh, because it it's, it is so iconic. So that's the first thing that I immediately was drawn to is the the way the music plays a little bit around with. And, and David Lynch does too with noir mm-hmm. uh, aesthetics because there's whenever there's this one woman that gets introduced and there's like a slinky jazz number introducing her. <laughs> yeah, that's Audrey. <laughs> yeah, Audrey. And so there's like all of these uh these little flourishes of noir music that just like okay, I see what you're doing here. So that's the mm-hmm. first thing that I that I got pulled to. Okay. The the other thing was is like watching these. Watching this in like succession of his filmography, um, I could definitely see where like some of his past was influencing this TV series, this pilot episode with like there's like a focus on industrial with Mm -hmm. the, the, the sawmill that we've seen as like a repeated theme throughout his earlier work. And then there's also like the stuff that he was exploring in Blue Velvet on a much bigger scape, I would say. Yeah, it really is fascinating watching this so shortly after watching and covering Blue Velvet, right? Mm -hmm. Because it really feels like we're interested in the dark seedy side of what appears to be traditional Americana. Yes, and I... Like, I made this comment when when we were talking about Blue Velvet that that is like the aesthetic I think of with David Lynch. But then as I'm watching this, I was like, no, this more refined um, look of what he was doing in Blue Velvet mm-hmm. is is more of what I guess I think of with Twin Peaks. And I guess the other thing that like really struck me on this watch is how this kind of shifted television. Mm-hmm. For something that started out really popular, and then I was looking at the uh, the metrics as like the number oh, of yeah. viewers, and it started to like dwindle through season one and then started to really dwindle through season two. Yep. Although I will say that if, if, if a show premiered now with those numbers from season two, it would, mm-hmm. it, it would be considered like a rating success. But <laughs> back in the nineties, when you didn't really have a whole lot of options, the fact that it kept dropping so yeah. much, it's, it's just amazing to me that a show that, that had like a declining viewership is something that I believe has influenced the way we make television from the nineties onward. I, like I was mm-hmm. thinking of all these shows, whether it was supernatural shows or or police procedures like The Killing, that yep. probably would not exist if David Lynch didn't do this. David Lynch and, David, and Mark Frost, I should say, didn't do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was thinking about that, too, because 
So one of the things that you and I quickly discovered when we hit play is that we thought this was going to be a conventional episode of television. So, you know, 44 minutes of content plus commercial breaks equals an hour. And this is a 90 minute episode. But of course, it ran for two hours with commercials. But, um, you know, I thought it's luxuriously paced, like it's Mm -hmm. very deliberately paced. There's a bunch of there's a whole smattering of characters who get introduced like so, so many people to the point where if you stopped watching after the events of the pilot, you would be like, well, what the fuck was the point of that one eyed woman with the blinds? Like, <laughs> what's with the log lady? What's with, you know, Dr. Jacoby, the weird coroner and so on? Like Lynch excels at introducing these weird, unusual kind of oddball characters, and it can sometimes feel nonsensical, particularly here where we're watching it play out for more or less the duration of a film, except that this is TV, right? So it's not as dark, it's not as experimental, but it still, you're right, changes the way we look at and make television. Like, this was a $4 million pilot, that was filmed in 1989. Oh, wow. Was it really that much? Yeah, it, it's massive. Like, folks, this is the precursor to things like the 20 million that we spend on the Lost Pilot in 2004 <laughs> or five. Uh, wow, I didn't realize that they spent that. I mean, it, ma- it makes sense. This is a luxurious production. This looks mm-hmm. like a movie. The only problem yes. is that because it's not a movie, there are way too many characters getting introduced to oh like for me, for me like i'm like i'm trying to like write every character name down because like if i'm just watching this they might just mm-hmm. flow over me and i would pick it up over time but as someone that is like trying to like keep track of who's who and take mm-hmm. you know notes on this i'm like i feel like i have a page just of character names just because there are oh, so sure. many random like the log lady as you mentioned or the woman with the eye patch or mm-hmm. i'm glad they got a little bit more but josie packard or like all these characters mm-hmm. that are just they just the script just keeps throwing at you to the point that it's it's like a barrage of new people that you're trying to like okay i'm trying to get a handle on this rather simple <laughs> story initially like this episode yeah. posits a a pretty simple murder mystery mm-hmm. that i know is going to get more complicated as it goes on <laughs> but you know i'm trying to like get hooked on that story and it's just like every time i turn around well who's this woman i want to know more about mm-hmm. her what is up with the log lady that is flickering the lights in the back of the you know uh the room like all these little things I'm like, this is all great. This is all very David Lynchian. But how are we going to <laughs> tell a convincing story with a million side characters is was my mm-hmm. first like initial reaction. Yeah, it, it's so true. Right. And if you think about the way that this is presented, I think it makes a bit more sense. Not only is this a pilot, so obviously we're trying to introduce this whole town, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is filled with denizens and they are hypothetically all at play in terms of potential suspects, maybe future victims. They're, they're all going to contribute in some way to the plot. Or so you would usually think if this was a more traditional show, but this is also very much a soap opera, right? So we're mm-hmm. setting up a number of romantic entanglements. So half the time a new character gets introduced and it's like, oh, okay, well, who are they fucking? Because everyone <laughs> yeah. in this town is cheating on everyone else. Everyone in this town is horny for everyone else. And yes. I'm here for it, but it's also uh-huh. like, okay, who is this relationship to this person? And we get some of it, mm-hmm. which is why uh, I was really happy that we got a little bit more information on on Josie 
more information than other characters, I would say, with mm-hmm. Josie, with like her history. There's she married a man who owned the sawmill. The man's sister thought that she should own it. He mm-hmm. dies. He leaves it all to to Josie. Causes tension. I'm like, okay, that is that is a juicy little nugget right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, the cast is also filled with this mix of like Lynch regulars mm-hmm. as well as some pretty big stars. So yeah, like the sister of the deceased sawmill, who obviously we will never meet, uh, is played by Piper fucking Laurie. And <laughs> right. when you see Piper Laurie. This is 1990, you know, Carrie is a solid 12 years earlier, and you're thinking, how is she not the star of this show, (laughs) much less one of a dozen supporting characters? What you just said makes perfect sense to me, because it it is kind of... What I was thinking is like all these people could be the leads in their own movies or their own Mm -hmm. little TV shows. And I I think that if this were made now, we would actually get like a whole episode devoted to like Log Lady and why she carries a log. Like, I think that that is maybe maybe that's sort of the way that television is presented now. And I'm kind of I hope that that's not what's going to happen in here, because I like the fact that she's just a lady with a log. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. I mean, don't worry, Terry. If if what you are hungry for is answers, you will not get that with Twin Peaks. (laughs) There will be clarity around certain elements, but this is the show to me where we really start to see david lynch not just pushing the boundaries of conventional media but also really experimenting with the form in terms of his storytelling like we've had such amazing discussions about the surreal kind of otherworldly cosmic influences in his work and i feel like twin peaks is a perfect synthesis of how you can Mm. make that I don't know, like really grounded because there are such fantastical things awaiting us as we make our way through the series. And yet at the same time, this is never anything more than a murder mystery in a small town that has a log mill and (laughs) basically a venture capitalist uh, for a hotel owner. The other thing what you just said just sparked memories for me is that how much this like I think has influenced the way we we view the the Pacific Northwest. Oh, mm -hmm. Uh, because I've seen so many shows and video games and movies that try mm-hmm. to replicate the feel of this. There's a, a video game that I that I really love called Life is Strange, and it mm-hmm. is literally set in this small town Americana in the Pacific Northwest. It has like pop songs, like indie pop songs in it. There's like a dead girl that is a mystery mm-hmm. and what is happening, like all of this type of stuff. I'm like, okay, I I am seeing where all of this influence is coming from. And it's it's wild to me that this Maybe even just this pilot episode kind of establishes how people not in the Pacific Northwest view the Pacific Northwest. Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, I've covered some of the Twilight content on my YA podcast. And when you watch those movies, which are like not even filmed in the same geographical area, but they embody the same kind of visual aesthetics where it's like this lush greenery i love that agent cooper who is of course played by kyle mclaughlin spends half of his time just marveling at nature in this pilot where he's like tell me about these trees i need to learn more what's a bird (laughs) but there is there's such an atmosphere in this show which is remarkable because a lot of the times we're spending whole sections of the pilot in 
the hospital, in the police station, in mm-hmm. various characters' homes. Like, it's not as though we're really trekking through the woods. And yet, there is such a sense of identity and place established by this geography, by some of these, um, like, the establishing shots. Oh, that waterfall. Right? Oh. Yeah. So we we really set the stage early on with this murder mystery. So, of course, we've got uh, Lynch regular Jack Nance, who was our lead in Eraserhead. Uh, that's Pete, the guy who discovers Laura Palmer's body on the beach. I didn't even recognize him initially. Right. Uh, I had to, like, go to IMDb and go, oh, wait, that's Jack Nance. That's, mm-hmm. that's Eraserhead. But it, it's, it, <laughs> I did notice it when I was watching watching it initially. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I love about moving through somebody's career is you get to see who they bring back and, like, in what capacity they use them. Pete never becomes a huge character in the show, but uh, I would be lying if if I didn't admit that I frequently yell at Brian, she's dead, wrapped in plastic. <laughs> I mean, what a what an iconic line, right? Right. Like, that is like the first like real bit of dialogue. Like there's a little bit of conversation as he's going like going fishing, right? Mm-hmm. But the first big point of dialogue in this in this pilot episode is that phone call with the uh, mm-hmm. she's dead, wrapped in plastic. Like what a what yeah. a stark opening. Yeah, to the extent that there's actually a Twin Peaks magazine that's called Wrapped in Plastic. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Is there really? Yeah. That's I fantastic. don't know if they still publish because the show's been off the air for quite some time. But uh, actually, you know what? I'm willing to bet that they came back for the return. So there's probably, you know, a number of new issues because of all that fresh content yeah but um one of the things that i was going to reference in that opening scene where he discovers the body is she's basically hidden on this like pebble beach and it looks very cold very atmospheric but the body has been left behind this absolutely mammoth like fallen tree trunk which is arguably higher than a person's body like height wise and I think it's really evocative and it reminds you that this is an industrial town, right? Like this is a town that we later learn depends on tourism. It depends on the sawmill. Like it's a big deal when Josie decides that she's going to stop production for the day because Laura Palmer has died. And it's like, uh, think of what you're doing. Like economically, this is Mm. a huge fucking deal. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I, and I, but I love that the conflict that arises there where we have the, the sister, you know, just randomly firing someone because she's Mm -hmm. like, it's such a, it's such a small moment, but you're right. It has like repercussions in terms of the industry of Twin Peaks. Mm hmm. I'm curious. I I know we have so much ground to cover. We're not going to be able to do this justice. But one of the things that really struck me looking at this from a contemporary perspective, like 33 odd years later, there's there's some interesting observations about like racism and xenophobia here between the way that Catherine, that's a Piper Laurie character, treats Josie, the Joan Chen character. There's very clearly some mistrust because she is a foreigner who was brought to the town. Like you, you even get the kind of like mail order bride vibe from the show, even though we never say it. And then we also have these German tourists that are trying to be wooed by Benjamin Horn, the owner of the, the big hotel in town. And there's also a German waitress who has like a very brief scene, but, uh, Bobby, who is like, 
the fucking asshole quarterback who was dating Laura Palmer, supposedly. Uh, he makes like this really gross observation about like, oh, aren't Germans always supposed to be on time? It's interesting that you that, that you're talking about this because the n- initial thing that that jumped out at me when when Josie's introduced is how. <sighs> I don't think she's introduced very well with that initial mm-hmm. shot because it, it feels a little bit like we are exoticizing. Is that a word? <laughs> I believe it is. But yeah, she she's being treated as an exotic object. Yes. And on one hand, I was like, I'm digging this because she seems to be kind of taking on the character of the femme fatale. Like, you know, mm-hmm. she had a husband that was rich. He died. I don't know if we're going to find out how he died right. or if there is anything like murderous intent there you know mm-hmm. but like it's framed almost as as if that is the case and i so sure. i on one hand i do enjoy the fact that she is this kind of austere androgynous in some ways like there's a shot of mm-hmm. her with like um a, it almost means like a sports coat on and she just feels like she just is embodying this androgynous nature but also like there's sure. a sense of exoticism around here that i i it, it kind of is uncomfortable watching mm-hmm. 33 years later because I know that, like, looking at um, Asian people as being, like, an exotic type of thing is something that was really big in the 80s and going into the 90s. Yeah. And so I don't know if this was, like, a, a hanger on to that or if there's going to be more to that later. But that was mm-hmm. one thing that, that kind of struck me is um, a little c- cringy watching this with a 2023 lens. Oh, for sure. I mean, we need to be honest about what we're seeing. This is a white-as-fuck TV show. But yeah. it's also because we're... We're supposedly talking about a certain type of class of citizen, a certain Mm -hmm. person who lives in a geographical area, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think the show very clearly understands that Josie is that exotic figure, whether or not it inadvertently plays into those stereotypes. I think we'll have to wait and see. But I I think she is the most striking part of this of this pilot. Like, I just... There's all these characters, like we said, Log Woman, Eyepatch Woman, that I want to know more about. But Josie mm-hmm. is someone that is such an enigma that I right. just like. And she has such a striking screen presence. She feels oh god, yeah, ready for a movie. Like she just her she could step out from from with that wardrobe and everything into the mm-hmm. set of a movie, and I'd be like, okay, what are we doing? Because I'm excited. I love I love her. Yeah, I mean, she's so glamorous compared to what everybody else in this town is, right? Yeah, because this is a small industrial town. Like, obviously, we have a bevy of teenage characters who are going to be providing the kind of sexy youth appeal, right? Like, like, oh, Bobby and his hair. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the 90 oh, haircut. The 90s, which, uh. which is still very clearly informed by the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this the show was obviously a huge sensation, particularly this mm. pilot in the second episode where it was like it was – the definition of water cooler, right? Like it it was clearly poised to be the murder mystery equivalent of something like Dallas and who shot JR, right? It was who killed yeah. Laura Palmer. But what ends up happening is we we create superstars out of people like Laura Flynn Boyle and Sherilyn uh. Flynn because they're so young and fresh faced and they're also maybe bad, like they're getting up to no good because the show is interested in the seedier side of what looks like an average American town. Yeah, the, those characters in particular really jumped into my sight because of us watching Blue Velvet. And they mm-hmm. feel like kind of the same. The character that like seems 
like there's maybe something more simmering underneath. And right. so that like immediate, immediately jumped to my attention. Well, I think you've hit on something because what the show is telegraphing is that there is sort of like nefarious actions, right? Like you mentioned the killing off the top and it is a very similar kind of format, like a very dreary rain drench visual aesthetic. We're following the cops as they're investigating what may be a series of murders. What I think is different about Twin Peaks is that it's interested in both like the mundane, i.e. Nadine getting her drapes and, <laughs> and putting them on the runner. But it also wants to have this like seedier, dirty side, right? Like this isn't just, oh, there's a potential murderer in town and we're having a town hall meeting and anybody is a suspect and it could be someone you know. It's also like what's happening behind closed doors mm. because people are having affairs. Like the good girl that is so good that the the school principal literally cries after making Ugh. an announcement about her death is also maybe up to no good because why was she sneaking out? Who was she seeing? Why does she seem to have multiple boyfriends? So that like is something that I, I really enjoyed was this, the way in which this pilot episode suggests from a town perspective, the innocence of these, of these girls. And then mm -hmm. we also have Dale coming in as, as a literal outsider who is like, I bet yep. you, if you check that, you're going to find cocaine. Like he, he just is like, <laughs> right? To the to the point of it, just like tearing apart all of these like ideals of what this town holds, these young, perfectly kept virginal women are actually mm -hmm. are actually up to. Oh my god, yeah! Like I love the moment where the curfew goes into an into effect, <laughs> and Donna overhears her father, who is the the doctor in town. She overhears him confiding, which he should not be doing, to his wife. Details of the crime <laughs> scene, right? Like we found half of a heart necklace. We think the killer has the other half. Donna knows who has that. She knows that it's James. Oh, yeah. So she just sneaks out of the house. And Cooper and, and Sheriff Truman are on a stakeout, like, because they are trying to find the mysterious Jay that was referenced in mm -hmm. Laura Palmer's diary. They literally get, like, an APB that Donna has gone missing. And it's like, <laughs> she's practically an adult like she's a high school senior who has snuck out of her house in this small town and yet every every situation is like oh my god donna she's the good girl she's the doctor's daughter you know like we need to find her basically insinuating before she can get into trouble before she maybe loses her virginity maybe mm -hmm. before she does some cocaine or smokes a joint or something like the the most dangerous things about this town is that one of these young girls could fall what i love about that too is the way her um sneaking out of a room gets resolved where she gets picked up immediately by the, by the police <laughs> dropped off at the police station her dad is there and he is mm -hmm. just like he's being this very like we just were so proud of you. We love you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of the the cherry pie in our eye. Like we just, yeah. we just think you're so great. And didn't you have your your sister's bike? And weren't you supposed to put air in the tire? Well, we'll go take care of that, sweetie. <laughs> I'm just so glad you're here. Like it's it's so funny how caring and overprotective they are about Donna. Whereas like we're seeing behind the scenes of like, she was up there with uh, Laura Palmer getting filmed by some person that they don't know who is. She's mm -hmm. obviously stealing the necklace so that, uh, you know, the, the other, the guy doesn't get in trouble. Like she's doing all right. of these uh, nefarious is a strong word, but doing all of these like unseemly things. Yes. And then the res resolution is her dad just being like, 
do you want do you want some ice cream? Like basically, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's it's this very sweet contrast between what is happening and what the parents are seeing. And I just I thought that, that scene was just so it made me laugh. It was just so perfectly written. Well, I think that's one of the things I end up really enjoying about having such a large cast for this series. Like, yes, it can seem unwieldy, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> folks here, hopefully not hearing it in the edit, but uh, we've been struggling with character names <laughs> a little bit behind the scenes because there's just so many people to remember. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it's really, really valuable to have these young characters as well as the adults because we very clearly see the results of this kind of infantilization and this idea of like, what does normalcy look like and how it's so shallow and surface level? Like the true horrors of what is going on in Twin Peaks is not supernatural. It's not an outside serial killer, but it's because nobody wants to address things. We just want to pretend that our daughter is great and let's take her home for ice cream. That's that's where the darkness lies. It's because we want to try to pretend that everything is fine. I do have a question, though, because you, you said it's not mm-hmm. a serial killer. And so I'm, I'm curious because one of the things that Cooper's is very proactive on is to try to find mm-hmm. if there is a note stuffed in the nail of the body. And so right. I'm like, is this... So immediately I was thinking, is this an outside killer that has come to Twin Peaks was my initial was my initial question, because Mm -hmm. otherwise, where is he getting that information from? Yeah. So there is a reference that Cooper has seen a similar murderous M.O. And I'll confess, I can't remember how that gets tied in the girl that we see wandering down the train tracks that they later visit in the hospital, who's kind of like comatose. And then she, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we see her sort of wake up at the end of the episode. We will learn about how this is connected to Laura Palmer and like, it does play into some of the, the mysteries and the shady doings that's going on around town. I can't recall if that other murder plays into effect in any other way, except for Fire Walk With Me, which is the movie that David Lynch makes after the TV series gets canceled. And everybody thinks he's going to wrap it up and and give us all the kind of (laughs) conclusions and satisfying catharsis that we're so desperate for. And instead, it's a prequel about the last 24 hours of Laura's life. And it gives you no new <laughs> it it gives us lots of new information but not the answers we're looking for <laughs> of course not why would why would we of do course that not. <laughs> yeah but it is i mean it's an amazing movie i actually can't wait until we get to talk about it because it's it's so confusing and so deliberate and i love how it kind of it it clarifies just how much of a a contrarian David Lynch is where he will say, no, I don't want to do this for you just because you think this would be satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) We're really entering into the like David Lynch as an auteur who kind of says, fuck you to audiences. Like Twin Peaks to me is the start of (laughs) him being like, I'm not giving you what you want. Sorry. Uh, I love that. I I love that. that I I don't know the, the kind of, fuck you attitude that that i think he i i definitely am seeing come through with some of this this work like it nicely fuck mm-hmm. you not like uh i hate my yeah. audience but just like a, we're not gonna not gonna give you completely what you want mm-hmm. yeah and and that's one of the things i end up really liking about twin peaks is that 
there's very deliberate elements of I know exactly what you're wanting when you come to this series, right? Like he's playing on this conventional kind of murder mystery element and he's giving us the small town full of secrets and it's filled with beautiful people who are pleasant to look at. But we are also getting these weird little glimmers that we've come to expect from his work, like the characters that just have weird little idiosyncrasies that, you know, you're like, that's intriguing. I'd like to know more. And sometimes he'll pay them off and sometimes they won't. And sometimes he just deepens them to the point where you're like, I'm sorry, what is the what is the <laughs> black lodge? What is the red room? What's with the little person? Like we've not even started to scratch below the surface of the weirdness no. of the show, but it's still playing within conventional genre formats so that you know, hey, we can air this on a major fucking network TV show. We can air this on a a major network and still have like mass appeal i think that's what amazes me about this is the fact that this was on you know broadcast television this was mm -hmm. like something that everyone regardless of whether you had cable or not could watch right and the fact that this is coming in the 90s is just i, I don't know it feels both of its time but also kind of ahead of its time if that makes mm -hmm. sense in terms of like the the way that the narrative unfolds, like there's definitely some 90isms that I would or late 80s as well that I would see in mm -hmm. here. But on another level, it does feel as if this exists outside of time in such in a weird. Yeah, I mean, that's there's nothing more Lynchian than <laughs> than that. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, absolutely. There, I do have a question. Diane. OK, do we ever learn about Diane? <laughs> And is she so, a real person or is he just like recording stuff into <laughs> his his pocket thing and then storing them? What is going on there? Yeah. So he will talk to Diane on the tape recorder for most of the first two seasons. We will never see her. Okay. Until the return. Oh. And he casts Laura Dern as Diane. Oh, my goodness. Mm hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of one of the joys of knowing and being able to remember most of what happens. Like, you you know, you mentioned <laughs> like, oh, is this a serial killer? And I said, no, um, that's because the what happened to Laura Palmer and Ronette is not a serial killer. It's like, we will find out who has okay. done the murder and who has done a couple of other crimes. But then in season two, there actually is a serial killer, but it's a oh. different character. Like it's a storyline that we haven't broached on. It actually touches on aging Cooper's past. Okay. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned that we will find out who the killer is because when I was looking at Wikipedia for this episode, I did see that there was an international version mm -hmm. of this that was filmed with 20 extra minutes in case the series right. was not picked up. Uh -huh. And it apparently um, shows that there is a man hiding in Laura's room when she checked in the previous day. And then it also reveals who Laura's killers are. Mm. And I'm like, I'm wondering, I was like, it, but it, that's all that's all this said. And I'm like, I'm wondering, is is it the same as what we're going to find out are the killer right. or killers or I'm curious. I'm curious if anyone's ever seen the uh, the international version. I'll confess I haven't. I have it on, I think there's an international cut of the pilot on my Blu-ray, but I okay. didn't I didn't watch it. Um, mostly because I, I figured you would not watch it. Yeah. But it's ironic because this is an almost identical scenario to what we'll see with Mulholland Drive, which was 
more or less intended to be the new Twin Peaks when it came out in the early 2000s, except it was not picked up to series. Oh. And so he bartered for five million extra so that he could film a wrap up. And when we get to that movie, you'll you'll very clearly be able to see, like, where does the pilot end and where does the new footage that clarifies where the series would have gone. But it's ironic because he's still populating it with these kind of like outlandish, outrageous characters. And there's a bunch of storylines that consequently don't really go anywhere because he never gets the series to explore them in the same way he does with Twin Peaks. That's unfortunate. I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, huh. Except that it it's fascinating because I think a lot of people who get frustrated with Twin Peaks and it's sort of meandering occasional aimlessness, because we will not learn the identity of Laura's killer by the end of the first season. And that was part I of the reason that. why people get mad, because mm-hmm. they thought it was going to be wrapped up at the end of the season, and it isn't. Like, Lynch never fucking cared about the murder. He was interested <laughs> in the townspeople. But Mulholland Drive rectifies that. So okay. uh, I think some people would find the film more more satisfying in conventional means. Okay. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering about that because I do without having seen this, I do remember as a kid hearing who killed Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. In the same way that like uh who shot what's his name? JR? JR. Is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or also who shot Mr. Burns. <laughs> yeah. From The Simpsons. Like those were things that that even though I had not seen other than The Simpsons, any of the other ones that were referenced, it's something that you still could hear people talk about. And so I can imagine if by the end of the first season that's not revealed how mm-hmm. angry people would be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Particularly when, you know, these episodes are they're rich and they're significant, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a 90 minute introduction to this world, but it's also finite, right? Like there's seven episodes. So this is back in the day and age where most shows were giving us 24, 28 yep. episodes. Like I, I remember going back and revisiting old episodes of Dallas because I wanted to see what the fuss was about with the who shot jr thing that happens i think in like season three or four so um i ended up watching a bunch of it it's very compelling it's very soapy obviously (laughs) but those are like full hour-long episodes that are like 26 28 in a season so this was concrete this had a kind of limited series feel to it and i think people really thought that they were going to get closure from it Mm. and then when abc sees these ratings they're like how do we keep this going (laughs) but also you need to fucking pay this off because we're hemorrhaging viewers right it's such a like a kind of like they want both sides of it and i can't imagine that david lynch and mark frost thought okay well you want how are we supposed to deliver on both? Like you want this to be concrete and finite, but you also want this to keep going because it's giving you ratings. I I feel like that is a struggle that still happens today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when people complained that lost felt like it had lost its way Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until that shows uh, creators and showrunners basically put their foot down to ABC, the same fucking studio that's making Twin Peaks. And they said, you know, we need to have an end date so that we can plan accordingly. You know, I was just thinking also how even though there are so many different characters introduced in this mm-hmm. episode, I do love how all of them feel unique 
uh, right. from each other, particularly the ones that get a little bit more screen time. Because my favorite of the the I would say sort of main cast so far mm-hmm. is um, Audrey Horn. Yeah, yeah, because she is like chaos walking. <laughs> <laughs> I love watching her change her shoes and smoking a cigarette at school. <laughs> yes, she. Sh- I, what I love is is the focus when when we f- when we first introduce her, and again that slinky number is playing, and the mm-hmm. camera pops on her shoes and stays there for a second. So we're supposed yep. to see how like austere and white and black the the shoe is that she then replaces and is red when she gets to to high school. I'm like, mm-hmm. I love that little thing. But then it's later when she's sitting at the desk with I think it's her mom. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, that's just the the hotel's receptionist. Like, okay. Basically, that woman is babysitting her. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that she is sticking her pencil into this cup of coffee. And mm-hmm. she just says, what would happen if I pulled this out? And the yep. woman's like, please don't. And so she does. And then that's immediately followed up with her going into the room with the Norwegians telling them and basically saying, oh, they found my best friend's body. <laughs> and I'm just like, you are chaos embodied are in a person. Why are you doing this, you little brat? I love it. I just love it's that I was cackling. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's such a great distinctive character you're right you know we compare this girl to donna who's so mm-hmm. oh gosh shucks dad you know i'm just trying to do the right thing and i'm so sad about my friend and uh even james the the boy that laura was having a secret affair with boy. who drives a harley but he's <laughs> like the most baby face young boy ever right mm-hmm. but he's very distinct from bobby who is the kind of like lothario asshole football player who doesn't give a shit about anybody and is also fucking the waitress at the diner that's the other thing i loved is that they they kind of they set up well bobby's with is probably with laura and mm-hmm. then we see bobby at the diner and he's like seems like a good old american boy he's he's asking the the, the waitress you know do you need a ride home and then it turns mm-hmm. out that you know that they're dating each other and that's contrasted with the fact that laura is also dating with someone and so i'm mm-hmm. kind of dating someone else i should say and i'm kind of curious to see if that kind of dichotomy of like the innocent girl versus boys will be boys i'm wondering if that is ever address because it's it is set up in here with like how the parents are viewing the girls and then when the boys show up at that at um donna's house it's snake slash mike and bobby they show up and the doctor's like you guys haven't been drinking have you Mm -hmm. and earlier it's like the curfew the curfew's out there you can't have we can't have anyone be out there in the curfew but the doctor doesn't say anything even though it's obvious that they are probably right. drinking and driving oh but it's like absolutely bobby is <laughs> fucking surfing on the hood of this car i know and he's like are you you're not drinking are you and he's like oh don't worry bobby's driving is bobby is dancing on the on the hood of the car right like <laughs> yep. okay and it's definitely a boys will be boys moment and so i'm curious i'm curious to see if that ever gets explored more mm-hmm. well it, it's fascinating too right because you you briefly mentioned audrey's shoes and this feels very similar to what Lynch was playing at in Blue Velvet with it's kind of you mentioned also that this feels almost like it's in and out of time because Mm -hmm. like Audrey looks like she's dressed from the 1950s right like yeah she could be in uh, a screwball comedy or something like that yeah I I could see that whereas you know we we've we're doing Rebel Without a Cause with James Mm. like he's very Mm -hmm. James Deany in but then, you know, so much of um, 
you know, Agent Cooper stuff is very film noir, police detective. So we're not just playing with genres, but it also feels like we're evoking different time periods. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that. That's cool. It's so densely textured. Like Mm -hmm. I taught a puzzle film course back when I was teaching university and we, we watched a couple of episodes of Twin Peaks, even though it's not conventionally a puzzle kind of text but it's so densely layered like you actually miss things if you don't catch the references or or even how they're sort of interlocking together yeah i I definitely could see this as as not a traditional puzzle narrative like lost is where it's like there's there's an actual puzzle that feels like needs to be solved but Mm -hmm. there is a a lot of these narrative angles that feel like they are interlocking uh, between the characters, between the themes being explored. So it, even though maybe it isn't um, a puzzle, it does feel like it is emblematic of those types of, of narratives, mm-hmm. for sure. So thinking about this potentially as a, a bit of a puzzle to be solved, or at least <laughs> a mystery to uh, unravel, where do you think this is going to go for the remainder of season one? Oh my gosh, I have absolutely no idea except that I do know <laughs> that the red room shows up because um I do remember seeing that when I was watching uh, one of the first 3 episodes maybe. Okay. <laughs> and so I do I do know that there's going to be some kind of weird dream like mm-hmm. logic to this. Right. That is very much a lynch that we've seen him used in I think pretty much all of his movies mm-hmm. up till now. I yeah, think all I mean, of them have had dream moments. Yeah. And and we're getting a taste of the supernatural, right? Because yeah. I think one of the most evocative moments of this pilot is when Laura's mother, uh, who is played by Grace Zabriski. Oh, she, she's so good. Yeah. And like, this is a rough role for her because she basically gets to play the grieving mother because mm-hmm. each episode is more or less equivalent to about a day or two. So she and Leland Palmer, the the father, are basically just grief stricken the entire series. Like Oof. it's a really emotionally draining role and performance for the two of them to play. But I love the final moments of this pilot is she wakes up from a dream and just you know, she starts freaking out, but it seems like she has a kind of ESP because even, Mm -hmm. and we see it a little bit with Donna too, right? Where characters seem to know things about a beat before it happens. And then they have these like really emotionally devastating reaction to them. The way this episode ended at first, I, I was a little annoyed with how it just like, we didn't let us sit on her that much Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden she's screaming and then the credits are running but it's like running while while it's happening almost and i was like oh no give this a moment (laughs) to like play out a bit before we cut to credits please right but but no there is definitely i would say hints of supernatural coming on coming into this that i'm i'm i know that the show is going to at least explore a little bit that i'm Mm -hmm. excited to see yeah yeah it does have one of my uh, scariest moments ever, but I don't think it's until season two that we'll oh, get really? to it. Oh, really? Yeah, the appearance of Bob in uh, someone's dream. It's, uh, yeah, it's very frightening in like a classic Lynch kind of way where you're just like, this shouldn't be disturbing. And yet <laughs> it is absolutely horrifying. Oh, I can't wait. 
<laughs> but Terry, we're nowhere near there. We have so far to go on this journey. Um, and we're not even going to talk about it with the next episode because we have to hop back to Cronenberg. So yeah. um, let's maybe leave the discussion of the pilot here. And we'll say if folks want to get in touch with you to reminisce about this 90 minute pilot, how would they get in touch? Uh, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if they want to find out which pie place is the best mm. where would they contact you <laughs> i can be reached at b still on my remote and that's the letter b and yes please do talk to me about pie because i absolutely love it what is your favorite pie what is my favorite pie i mean if we get to go desserty like true dessert i will say mm -hmm. key lime mm. but if it has to be like a fruit filling um i do love a cherry ah, cherry is classic right yeah <laughs> it's like when people get apple pie i'm always kind of bored See, I, I like a good apple pie once in a while, okay. I will say. But no, ice cream is, or no? Oh, ice cream. Okay, yeah. It has good to call. be a hot, high, hot slice of apple pie, and yes. ice cream is the only way I'll eat it. There we go. <laughs> Damn it, now I want pie. <laughs> uh, pie and donuts. <laughs> Podcasting is a hungry business, folks. <laughs> Can you tell it's lunchtime? <laughs> right, there is that as well. Yeah, uh, we'll also thank the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. So, yes. um, Terry, we are leaving Twin Peaks behind briefly. We will revisit more of the show in the future. But uh, are you excited to hop back to a very Canadian David Cronenberg film in Videodrome? I have heard so much about Videodrome, and I am so excited to finally cross that one off my list of movies to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this has been a long time coming, because originally we were going to try to coordinate this so that you could come on the Horror Queers episode when we yeah. covered it earlier this year. Uh, and then our timing was just like way too rough and rushed because of Sundance and stuff. So right. uh, it's fun. You and I get to tackle it solo and really go deep into it. I'm so excited. All right. Well, that'll be next time. But uh, until then, I guess um, look for ours under your nails. <laughs>